Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, the history of the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the, the seat of authority in, in the church, and everything in between up through the Reformation and beyond. It was on that deep dive that I encountered Catholic theology, Catholic history of the church, the history of the Catholic church, and those things from a Catholic point of view for almost the very first time. And it was in reading those primary sources, those sources from the Catholic church, that I realized what I thought I knew about Catholics and what they believed was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not, simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by Eric Ibarra talking about the history of the papacy. It's an incredible, deep, deep episode, guys. I hope you love it. Eric himself is a Reformed Baptist convert to the Catholic faith. He spent time there. He became an Anglican in search of the authority seat of the Church, the Apostolic Church, succeeding from the Apostles, from from Christ. and then spent 10 years in this deep dive looking into the roots of the papacy as he weighed Orthodox Christianity, Anglican Christianity, and Catholic Christianity as well, ultimately becoming a Catholic convert, of course. The fruits of his 10-year deep dive is available to us in a fantastic new book out from Emmaus Road Publishing. And he's here to share with us the fruits, those fruits of that 10-year research journey. It's incredible. We trace out the history of the papacy from the very beginning, talk about all kinds of objections to infallibility, to to really changes the Catholic Church made and how these things developed, and if that's a criticism that we need to address and how we do, how we tackle those kinds of problems of the papacy. If you are on the fence thinking about the Catholic faith, if you are a non-Catholic Christian wondering what we're doing over here as Catholics, or you're a new Catholic, looking to understand and defend the history of the papacy. This episode is absolutely packed with stuff that you are going to love from one of my favorite guests, the cordial Catholic, the nicest guy that I know, Eric Ybarra. I think you'll love it, friends. If you want to help support the show and conversations like this, check out the show notes for how you can do that, patreon.com slash cordial Catholic or paypal.me slash cordial Catholic to underpin the mission of this thing. Those links, friends, are in the show notes. And thank you to those who are supporting this show financially week after week. You guys are amazing and help to keep this thing going. So thank you very much. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Eric Ibarra on the history of the papacy. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit the bell, subscribe to the channel, do all those fun things, leave some comments down below, keep it nice, keep it PG, and thanks for watching there. If you're listening on podcast, thank you. Please follow the show wherever you find it and leave a rating or review if you can, because those ratings and reviews help to push the podcast out to new listeners and grow and expand the mission and, and mandate of, of this show, what we're doing here. Uh, we're in for an awesome time this week. I am joined actually by the Cordial Cat. 
Catholic by Eric Ybarra. He is, I think, the nicest guy that I know. He's a convert to the Catholic faith. He's the author of a number of fantastic books, Growing Day by Day, Eric. Melchizedek uh, <laughs> and the Last Supper, the Philoque, the Papacy, they just, the just shall live by faith, and the Church Fathers on Rebaptism. A, a fantastic spread of books, Eric. Uh, he lives with his, his six sons in Orlando and wife in, in Orlando, Florida. And we're talking about his newest book, The Papacy, out from Emmaus, Ro- uh, Emmaus Road. No, Emmaus Academic. Is that right? It's ERP. Emmaus Road Publishing Emmaus is technically Road where Publishing. my book. That's the one, the, the books that they, the books that they market towards seminaries oh. is through uh, Emmaus Academic, and my book w- landed in just general audience rather than seminary. So, well, that's yeah, that's fantastic. Your enormous, yeah. nearly eight hundred page book on the papers here. Congrats on yes. that. And hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks, thanks for being here, Eric. Thank you, Keith. I, I'm I'm uh, happy to be back and i appreciate your welcome back and it's just a blessing and a gift to uh get, be here and and uh thank you for giving me a, a a table to share with you well i'm very happy to have you back i said before just just now i think you are the cordial catholic this is the name of my show eric but i i swear i mean if i think of a guy who is cordial who's out there defending the catholic faith charitably ironically thoughtfully kindly it's it's always you eric time and again and i see your interactions on facebook and different places uh, on youtube on your blog and i see guys attack you sometimes sometimes very crudely very personally very rudely and i see you respond time and again in thoughtful kindness eric so keep fighting (laughs) fighting that good fight man i don't know how you do it some days but congrats on on representing the catholic faith this is charity yeah it's a well you know it's a I, I think I, I've been extended so much grace and mercy in my own life. And um, I mean, my own wife is just, uh, <laughs> she's like the greatest saint I know. And, you know, my wife and my, my kids, they, they, you know, they, they're very merciful to me in my task of parenting. And I've just, you know, I, I, I had my days of, retaliation and and you know i did it on facebook there are people who know me from back in the day where i could be uh and and then there's probably some time in the last year or so where i've probably let somebody have it um (laughs) so i'm not innocent uh, you know in in the in the when you look at the full breadth of my life but i i do know that a lot of these people on the other end of the screen they're eternal souls and it's so easy for people to fly off the handle um Look, when you're driving on the road, you people flip each other off and and say evil things on the road because they know they're not going to have to stand yeah. in front of them. Well, it's just like that on the Internet, just even more so. So I, I, I just say, you know what, this person, if, if this person is going to get me angry and I'm going to display wrath on the Internet, they're actually going to possess more control over me Um mm-hmm. In, in their faraway distance where I'll never know where they are. I'll never have the, um, the opportunity to c- confront them, you know? So why, what, I mean, it, why not just take the opportunity to be perhaps a, 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 a link in the chain of that story that helps that person, you know? And so it, it, it helps to think that way. 
people have done it to me quite a bit so that I'm returning the favor. <laughs> you're a great you're a great guy, Eric. I can't I can't stand you. <laughs> you're too, why why are you living in Canada? You're too Canadian, Eric, to be uh, down there in Florida. I got to no, say. No, uh, yeah, I'm from Miami Beach, so <laughs> I was I, I was actually from a pretty uh, rough area and uh I've had my I've had my run-ins and um but uh you know being a father has really impacted me a lot and uh, trying to be a good husband, you know, was, is, has been, it, it takes a lot of time and effort. Um, but most of all, I, I think that uh, it's just part of the ministry. It's, it's, if we lose it and if we get angry, then even if we're right, even if we are, like very compelling in our argumentation, just the fact that we're going to let somebody down in that way, we might as well have lost. So um, if I'm going to take the time to be in this business of uh, defending the Catholic faith, uh, I could do it perfectly and lose everything uh, if, if we do it in a, in a way that um, makes this out to be like a blood sport. You know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> well said, well said. Now, you've produced an 800-page book on the papacy, and there are lots of ways we could tackle this, and lots of ways we have on this show and on the internet, on YouTube, and debates and discussions and blogs and other books that defend the papacy and all kinds of different angles. And you in particular here have, are, are tackling the papacy in terms of the East and the West, in terms of the Orthodox Catholic kind of debate. And I'm curious to begin with, Eric, how, why? Like you did obviously did an absolute ton of research. I think this was like a 10-year project for you. And this is an enormous, yeah. enormous project. This is a huge <laughs> mammoth yeah. book. And your sources are, gosh, I don't know. You, you've dug this so deep, I can't even fathom this project, the scope of this, Eric, honestly. Uh, and readers should just see the size of this book to understand and appreciate the scope of your, the table of contents alone. It's, yeah. it's enormous. And the font is yeah. tiny, so, yeah. which allows you to pack you more, more uh, detail in there. So for, this must have been for you a project of some kind and, and must have come from somewhere. You're a convert to the Catholic faith, as I am. And I know for me... I didn't have, say, a stopover. I didn't go to or become Orthodox and begin attending an Orthodox liturgy or anything. But for me, as I was moving towards the Catholic faith, asking questions of authority, the, the papacy, the, you know, the, who held the seat of understanding and unpacking what we believe and how we act as Christians, I did a dive into the Orthodox faith and, and looked at the claims of authority in the Orthodox faith versus the Catholic faith, trying to understand where to land for myself. I actually had friends who were Orthodox. So for me, that was that was more of a natural first kind of stop is to look at the Orthodox Church and say, okay, well, well these guys, my friends here, this compelled them, what in here? And, and for me, it was the issue of authority in the Orthodox Church that drew me to keep going towards the Catholic faith. Because I couldn't figure out not even looking at the sources in any depth like you've done in any such imagination. I looked at some cursory historical sources and some some theology but even practically for me, I found that I couldn't un- understand how it would work any different than, than my current Protestant faith in terms of ultimate authority in the Orthodox Church. And so I kept kind of going and, and found the papacy and found a, a home in there that made logical sense and then obviously theological and historical sense as well. 
what was the genesis for, for you in this journey, though? What began to <laughs> this mammoth project of yours? It must have began somewhere for some reason on your on your journey. Where, where was that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Great question. So, yeah, uh, the the documentary evidence in this book probably comprises ten plus years of research. Um, but the genesis of this was. Uh, as a, I was a Reformed Baptist for many years. I was one of those guys that would be uh, preaching the Bible on the campus over here at the university in Central Florida. And um, I, I wonder how many people see me nowadays. I mean, I was like very thin back then, so I don't think they'd recognize me now. But um, I, I went from that to sitting down with Lutherans. I, I wanted to move more closer to uh, a tra- tra- traditional Christianity. I was looking for kind of like what Newman and the Tractarians were trying to do in the Oxford movement, which was where can we find the absolutization of the Christian faith, right? Where is it certain? Where is it absolute and not subject to so much re, you know, reinvention? And uh, with the with the Lutheran Church, I found well, I'm not going to go to the Catholic Church because I I thought they were I thought they were kind of like what gets presented today by a lot of the Protestant apologists, where there was a very pure ship that set sail from the dock at the beginning, but after two you know 1500 years, all these barnacles came on, all these accretions came on. And it was important to get rid of those by the Reformation. So Lutheran Lutherans were, you know, compelling to me for a while. But then I kept researching history and I couldn't get away from the monoepiscopacy and the Eucharistic sacrifice. And uh, so I, I found a very strange home and it was cozy while I was there in the Anglo-Catholic world, Anglican Church. And uh, while I was there... Um, I felt like I could be there for the rest of my life. Um, but being so deep in the study that I was, I didn't want to just stop. I, so I just kept reading, kept reading and reading and reading. And I noticed that uh, my own Anglo- Anglo-Catholic parish, you know, even though I could, uh, materially speaking, uh, point to history to prove that us Anglo-Catholics were doing a lot of the what the church fathers did, I found other elements that was not how the church fathers thought. And in particular, it was not in the issue of ecclesiology and the visible oneness of ecclesiology, because I was part of the, the APA, the Anglican province of America on the East coast under uh, Bishop Grundorf. We were a break off of a break off of a break off part of the, uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar, part of the, the continuum of the Anglicans, the, 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 the traditional continuum. We broke off from Canterbury when Canterbury started to go liberal with, um, the acceptance of females into the priesthood and also a speculative acceptance and toleration of perhaps new ways to understand, um, same sex relationships. And so the church, you know, the Anglican church, the church of England, uh, stood circled around Canterbury, which kind of went south in the liberal direction. And then you've, you had the Episcopal church that kind of went in a similar direction in the States. And then from there, you have all these break parts that are trying to go back to the original traditional 
Anglicanism. And uh, we maybe had like 10 or 15 parishes up the coast of the East. And I'm thinking to myself, well, what do I think about the Catholics and the Orthodox? Uh, my instinction, my inst- my my instinction is to say that they're part of the church as well, but the church fathers didn't allow for that kind of a what's called a branch theory, and not just kind of like a temporary branch theory. Like this could be a thousand year long, two thousand year long branch theory. So, kind of like a permanent schism ecclesiology, as if it's okay to be that way, and. That's when I said, no, it just this is brand new. This is not what the fathers taught. It doesn't seem to be what the scriptures teach either. So that's when I knew, all right, I'm going to actually have to step into uh, the frightening zone of either the East or the West in the historic sense. And that's that put me at the fork between Byzantium and, and Rome. And uh, that was before I learned about the other schisms, you know, the Egypt, you know, the Egyptian Syrian Miaphysite and the Assyrian Church of the East. But the fork between Byzantium and Rome is really what gripped me. And I knew that I, I made a promise to God that I would not make a flippant decision about it. And even when I did make the decision about it, this is going back to like 2012 towards the end of the year. Um, I said, I will not let this subject go until I have satisfactorily studied it very, very well, even after becoming Catholic. So I just continued to hit the books, writing articles. I made my own blog. My blog seems to be centered around the whole East-West Latin Byzantine discussion, although I do talk about Protestantism in many ways sometimes. Um, so that's that's where the interest started. Where the genesis of the book came in is when I started to forget a lot of the things I learned. And I thought to myself, whoa, I don't want this to just come into my mind and leave through my withering memory. And so I said, there needs to be a way to document it. So that's where the genesis of the book came in. So this is my investigation of the, the <laughs> East versus West debate, specifically on the uh, the papal primacy. And because I think that's really the that's really the, the what at the end of the day, what makes the difference between the two nowadays, you know, the filioque way and, you know, purgatory is Those things are definitely doctrinal. They're essential. But it seems what we've learned is that the papacy, we keep coming back to that issue as fundamental. And as you know, Joe Heschmeyer has, has made it clear, the papacy is really what it comes down to. If that's true, then Catholicism is true. Um, because if you prove the filioque true, well, that's, the Protestants believe the filioque. So um, I did treat the filioque eventually, but only <laughs> after, only after um, treating on the papal primacy. So that's the genesis of this book. Yeah, there's a book on that, too, that you've, <laughs> you produced. Yeah. So, like, yep. mm-hmm. so 800 pages in a very tiny font, tackling this subject. I, think I mean, we, we are the benefactors of your thoroughness and your investigation, Eric, so thank you for that. And I think I, I, that's phenomenal. I mean, that, that's an amazing journey. And I think you're, you're spot on that, that is the, that's the claim, that the papacy, right? That, that's the claim that it, it boils down to you can get the other things out of the way and deal with those things, but you're ultimately left with, well, yeah, where does the actual authority lie? And for me, you know, 
my understanding of, of the Orthodox Church when I was on my journey was to look at the church and go, okay, so these churches were kind of together. There was this, there was this, and there was this schism over where the authority lay. The, you know, who had the authority to, to maybe change the, the creed or whatever, but ultimately it was a schism about the authority and where that lay. But that's not, I don't think, because you treat, you, you talk about the papacy far, far back before the, the schism between East and West. There's yeah. much more to talk about in, in there. So where, I guess my question would be, the roots of the opposition to the, author, the, the, the papacy or, or the roots of this kind of dissension, where does this really begin between East and West? Like, where does that boiling point start, start to boil before yeah. it finally erupts, you know, in, in 1054, in, in air quotes? Sure. Where does it yeah. begin? That is such a great question, and I, I, I tackle it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a complex question. It requires complexity in the answer, but I'm going to make this as short as I can. Eastern and Western Christians up to about the 9th, 10th century uh, thought that there had been the one undivided church of the first millennium. Between, between East and West, the Greeks and the Latins. Um, and once the schism hit between Constantinople and Rome in 1054, which is more of like a symbolic date, um, Christians on both sides were still thinking that we were relatively in communion with one another because the other Eastern patriarchates didn't follow Constantinople in removing the Pope from the diptychs of divine liturgy for some years. So it took a while for the schism to really, uh, there was a brewing process, you could say, or an inc incubational period where it's it was steady, the markers were set up, enough of the material was sufficient to, to, to break the two churches in half, but it, it still took a while for, for formality to sink in. Definitely by the sack of Constantinople 1204, and most certainly by the rejection of the Council of Florence at the end of the 15th century, is solidified the separation of the two churches. Um, but by and large, many scholars, historians, up to the, the, you know, the, the modern era even, uh, spoke of the one church of the first millennium up until the schism started, the the snowball rolling around 1054-ish. But increasingly in the 20, 20th century and now in the 21st century, historians are, are finding the material for the schism back into the early centuries that was already embedded into East and West dividing the two conceptually, but there wasn't, there was no cognition of it to really make a schism until, until much, much later. And so you've got historians and theologians today that speak about uh, an incognito schism that was already forming between the Greeks and the Latins. So almost I mean, some I've I've seen some scholars say that it already started back in the second century. I don't go that far. Um, so a lot of them say the fourth century, where Rome starts to make mandates and starts writing decretals, you know, decrees, um, papal decretals to the east, to the west, in the in the in the same format that the Caesar Augustus used to write 
to the uh, imperial provinces, you know. And the East is said to be more of a collegial, more of a, you know, um, uh, where the bishops are all equal and it's unanimity which wins the day, whereas the Roman West is more papal. And it's, so at the end of the day, it's what the Pope decrees. And uh, so I, I still think that's too neat of a division too, but it, it passes. It's it's today. It's what passes for scholarship today. So if you introduce something different than that, you're going to have to do the the scholarly work and trying to prove otherwise. Um, where I land on it is I I don't think we can say there was already a schism there, but I think we can start to see a difference in paradigms and. You, 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 we see it in action. It's not something that we don't. We have to speculate on. We don't have to speculate. We definitely see it in action in some of the ecumenical councils where the pope is force. The pope is enforcing something, and then there are Greeks who think that it doesn't have any. He doesn't have any authority to do that. So we we can't say that both sides were always on the same page. But what I have found is that the the Eastern churches did end up accepting the papal claims when they thought it was oppor- the, the opportunity was there for orthodoxy to win. So if they were combating monothelitism, uh, uh, Arianism, or or the the Christological errors of Nestorius or Eutychius. They definitely allowed Rome to make her claims, and they definitely made use of those claims. Um, but where where they grounded that was it in the fact that Rome was the imperial city in antiquity? Was it because the canons created that kind of a a position for her, or was it this divine institution from the mouth of Christ to Peter? And you see Easterners choosing from the three differently at different times. Um, I think you've got a, a, you know, a very good portion of significant saints, doctors, and councils in the East that, that fall in that category where it's a divine institution created by Christ for Peter's successors until the end of time. Uh, but you do have the other ones, you know, where when they go against Rome, their rationale is, well, this is a canonical thing, so we can go against it if he goes against the faith. Uh, or, or um, well, you know, Rome had its stature from the imperial city, but Constantinople's now new Rome. So maybe the emperor is the one that has the final authority. But what we see is the one side that was always consistent and never budged was Rome's position on the matter, which was her her duty to pastor the universal church didn't come from a lust for power. It didn't come from a usurpation of authority that they had to seize, but rather it was an obligation that was put on top of them uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ in Blessed Peter because of his cathedra or his throne stationed in the Roman Church, yeah, well said. Good answer to a complex, a complex yeah. question. Well done, <laughs> sir. Now, obviously, at the end of the study, you you've become Catholic, and so the evidence in this book would obviously lean towards 
that conclusion that that Rome was right on the papacy, and you really do the uh, do this incredible dive into history throughout all the ages right from the beginning of the church forward, and looking at the evidence for for the papacy uh, as opposed to evidence for for there not being a you know not that not being the foundation of authority in the church to to respond to that orthodox claim, and of course, I mean this. Evidence could equally be used against, say, a Protestant claim of no papacy because it's, it's, it's evidence that I think shows a papacy from throughout history, right? You're, you're tracing out the evidence for the papacy. Right. Uh, where, I, I guess my question would be, looking at, you know, Scripture is one thing. You, you cover that in this book, in a chapter. And then you go methodically throughout the ages, looking at that the evidence in in each and every corner corner of the of the <laughs> historical world, as the it, four corners of the yeah, world. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder though. Then what would you say about kind of the the, the foundation of the papacy? It wasn't as if and we're not, we don't argue this as Catholics that it was established from Scripture in this nice, neat and tidy thing that then goes forward throughout all of time. Right? There isn't like this papal manual in scripture that yes, we as Catholics say, right. okay, here it is, and this just kind of marches forward, right? Yeah. That's mm-hmm. not how it is. So how do you no. treat how do you treat that evidence for the papacy from the beginning and then and then going on? Because right, the the critique often is, well, it's not here and therefore it doesn't exist. But you have eight hundred right. pages of, of something here, Eric. So. Yeah, so there's a couple of things to look at this and, and make a good analysis with it. Um so, yeah, it's not like the Old Testament where God, you know, took Ma- Moses to the mountain and told him every last instruction for how the tabernacle was to be built, what room was going to be for what, what objects are going to be for what, and what the priests will be and what the sons of Aaron will do. And uh, that would have been nice, you know, um, <laughs> but the new Testament doesn't have that. What, what we have coming out of the new Testament is, uh, an apostolic mission that's centered in Jerusalem. As far as they know, uh, Christ is returning very soon, you know, so they weren't making geopolitical plans for how the church is going to outreach all, you know, past Rome. I mean, for them, that was the ends of the earth. Um, and so, uh, it was kind of an accident that, uh, of the persecutions that moved them from Jerusalem to Antioch. We read this from the Chronicle of St. Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So they, they developed the Antiochian mission and from there Christians are going in the dispersion or the diaspora and, uh, you see church plants, up, uh, apostles going out and, and being the uh, progenitors of these mother missions, whether it's in uh, Corinth, Ephesus, Thessaly, uh, Philippi, uh, Colossae. They're going to all these major cities in the Roman provinces and they're planting churches and they're tagging out, they're bringing these like these sons, like Timothy was the son and the faith for Paul. Titus was a son. Uh, Barnabas was a co-worker. You have these co-workers with the apostles. Um, they were called the evangelists. You know, uh, They were not like of the original 12 apostles who saw the Lord, where you know Paul's being born out of due time, saw the Lord through the miraculous intervention on the road to Damascus. Um, but you, you start to see church plants, and then from those church plants, 
missions being conducted from those major plants. But there was these 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 mother cities like uh, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, and Egypt, um, and then you know some of the classical churches in the Asiatic uh, East, Ephesus. Uh, Philippi, Samirna with Polycarp, uh, you get, you know, all these, um, these churches, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what you start to see is that uh, we don't have a lot of documentary evidence, you know, it wasn't as if they were writing a chronicle for 21st century readers, <laughs> <laughs> they 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 didn't feel they needed to prepare for for something like that. So what we can glean from their from the small epistolary exchanges in late antiquity, we start to see something quite amazing. Uh, nonetheless, which is that in order to to run this this Christian mission worldwide, there needs to be some sort of government. And the apostles knew that. And so we read already in First Clement, his epistle from Clement, could have been written very early. I stick, I stick with the 95 AD date. But he gives us one of the first um, indications that the apostles knew that there was going to be a contest when they die, who's going to take up the appeals you know, there was an appeal from Paul and Barnabas over the situation of circumcision, right? Well, what they do? They went to Jerusalem. They held a synod. Peter stood up. He spoke. And James concluded that 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 was the court of appeals, right? Well, what about when the apostles are, are done? To whom do we appeal for doctrinal disciplinary problems? Um, and what we see is Rome, the city of Rome, interestingly enough, so not Jerusalem, not Antioch, and nowhere in the East where Christianity originally started breathing. All the way in the West, in Italia, in the Italian peninsula, this, this Church of Rome is the prima sedis, the first sea. What in the world is that? <laughs> um, but we start, they don't define it for us because they're just, they make passing references about it, you know. Uh, then we get the uh, second C and third C. So there was three C's that were leading uh, in the in the beginning of the early centuries of the church. Um, if issues were compounded in the Far East, uh, the court of the church at Antioch would manage affairs. Sometimes Ephesus took up that role. Um, Jerusalem was coming in to to take up a role as well, but Antioch had a preeminence in in in, in that area in Syria, in Egypt, the Church of Alexandria took up affairs, and if issues all and all the East would refer to Alexandria, but if issues could not be solved in the Eastern sphere, uh, and they needed to get like a finality, like a a final decision where. After that decision was made, there was no more revision or like questioning and opening the status of the of the issue up again. It would be going to Rome, and we don't get a rationale for it 
right away. They're not saying, oh, by the way, for those later who are going to wonder why we do this, it's because Peter was there. And, you know, they don't say that because they don't feel the need to say that. But we do catch them saying it uh, right around the third century where there's a dispute over baptism and how to receive people who were baptized in heretical communities. And what we see uh, is uh, Pope St. Stephen making a claim that the divine investment of Christ into Peter, as recorded by St. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18, that because of that, the Roman cathedra, the Roman Episcopal throne, is equipped with a legitimate power to make enforcements on doctrine and discipline. And we already have notations of this happening earlier, right, with Clement to Corinth, Victor towards the Asiatic churches. I'm sure some of your listeners are probably familiar with that whole Cordo Deciman controversy over the date of the Easter celebration. Pope Victor's already exerting universal jurisdiction in the 180s. But again, we don't have a rationale for it. You see the rationale starting to get explicit with Stephen. Um, where St. Peter and his primacy is what legitimizes Rome taking responsibility for foreign disputes that are not nowhere near the enclosure of Italy, but they're taking place far away. Um, and once we move into the fourth century, the documents, especially when Christians are, they come out of the shadow of persecution and Christians are growing um, especially when you get the imperial Greeks, you know, the, the, the people of the empire that were not Christians converting to Christianity and keeping their, um, keeping some of their noble statuses, like the, the family of St. Ambrose, for example, um, you start to see the literature pop up. And now we have more to, to, to read. And here's where you start to see this idea that Christ um, wanted to build an apostolic college to govern the church, and that when the apostles came to their end, the, their successors would would take their office, like Clement said. But within that collegial structure, there was a hierarchy, the apex of which is St. Peter's station, where he died as martyr in the, in the Church of Rome. And so that's really where things begin and the question is is christ leading his church or did he did he did he uh leave the church to be tyrannized by human opinion you know or did he does he have a plan with it and the 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 early christians are all conscious that the holy spirit is entrusted with this mission of vivifying the church until the end of time. And um, the it's just the majority of the evidence points in the direction of this is what the Lord, uh, uh, this is what he did. All of the true doctrines, not the Montanists, you know, not the Gnostics, not the Novationists, not the Ebionites, all those other competitors, but the one Catholic church, for now, let's just say small c, the one, the, all the the Catholic churches that saw Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch as the chief sees, that's the Catholic Church. That's the Church of the Creed, the Unum Sanctum. 
So, you know, Protestants might look at this and, you know, they're going to have to ask, you know, if, if Christ, if our Lord Jesus Christ gave so much attention and effort to make the apostles infallible in their, in their writings and in their oral preaching, um, in order to, in order to benefit the, the, the church, uh, why is it that that would retire when the church needs it the most, namely when the apostles pass away, you know? Um, so those are some epistemic, epistemic, philosophical, you know, uh, prolegomena questions, but, um, my main audience is really the Orthodox. Is the, the the book is subtitled "Revisiting the Debate Between Catholics and Orthodox," and and that makes it much easier because the Orthodox share the heritage with us um, for the first ten centuries. You know, so uh, I was if I was writing it for Protestants, I I probably would have to, you know, take a different angle, but I think a Protestant could read it and yeah. definitely find strong, compelling, you know, cause there, a lot of Protestants are thinking, I was just reading a Protestant book the other day by somebody who is, you know, otherwise a famous scholar and, and his name won't be mentioned. Um, but the way he was talking about the papacy is like, he thought that this was invented like in the 12th, 13th century. I'm thinking to myself, there's just no way he could be that familiar with early Christianity having, having spoken like that. So I definitely think that Protestants across the spectrum could benefit from reading it. Yeah, yeah. But the shared heritage with the Orthodox, there's already that groundwork laid there, right? It's just yeah. a question of where to put that authority. And I think one of the, you know, one of the, the objections, okay, is so, all right, so I don't see this explicitly in Scripture, so this is one of those accretions that 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 Roman Catholics slowly accreted or brought power to themselves, ushered yes. in power to themselves as this developed. It's not in Scripture from the beginning. It's 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 unclear, and so we can call this an accretion that just grows and grows and grows and grows. And this is one of those indicators of of the Roman Church, the things that 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 the Romans do right is just to right. center power under under ourselves. So you go through and kind of trace out these these claims throughout history to say no well look this was this was understood here and here and here and here this is it fair to say developed right and it, i guess is that wrong that those kind of things might develop Yeah so now we're getting into an issue um and and this is uh uh the topic of the development of doctrine, which, um, you know, it, 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 this is like, uh, one of those things. It's the, one of the most misunderstood, yeah. uh, uh, ideas in that you see. Um, and what's interesting is that if there's any, if there's any doctrinal camp in, in contemporary Christian society that should be holding to this concept and rely upon it and depend upon it the most. It's definitely the, the Protestant and evangelical world because they, they, their whole idea is that the church went in diverse ways, some wrong, some heretical, some, you know, wrong, but not that wrong that it was completely destroyed until you get to the Reformation, and then the Reformation opened up, um, like what Dr. Gavin Orland calls the retrieval 
uh, reform and renewal by retrieving the older traditions. John Calvin said, we just want to go back to the purity of the fourth century. Well, that that's all development. That's all a development. You know, you can't avoid it. If you're a Protestant, you're doing development of doctrine. If you're an Orthodox, you're doing development of doctrine. If you're a Catholic, you're doing development. That's one of the points that Newman was trying to make in his introduction to the essay, which is that the development of Christian doctrine is a natural fact to be observed by its nature. It's not something that we... Because what some Catholic, so what some Orthodox and Protestants do is they they see this as a way of oh the Catholics are they're admitting that they have no connection to the early to the early church so what they do is they come up with this glue that is supposed to stick the the Grand Canyon cliffs together you know and they call it the development of doctrine and we all know it's just illegitimate you can't close the gap so they come up with some you know well you know this is the development eh? you just pull a rabbit out of the hat you know it just and it's such a terrible terrible misrepresentation of what uh, John Henry Newman as just a, one of the voices who testifies to this observation you've got people all the way back to the fifth century that are already talking about the idea of doctrinal development so we, we get that in saint vincent de Lorenz. so i won't belabor on how to legitimate um the theory or the or the fact of development but uh what you see in, in early christianity is definitely this this fact that uh, you have this idea you know, there's the one church, there's the, the the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. It has to be protected. The Episcopal officers are the chief guardians of that faith. And then within that, there's a further hierarchical apex at the Apostolic See, as it was called. It, it began to be called the Apostolic See, um, the final court on doctrine and discipline. Um, and so you start to make deductions that are not they're not foreign to the primitive idea. They're simply the primitive idea thought of more carefully as applied as uh, through time and through the traffic of human economy and questioning. And, and, and these are things that may not be known explicitly the time that the primitive idea was given, but it's definitely known as that primitive idea goes through time and through through the economy of humanity and history and so you get some of these deductions like well well if the final court of appeals is rome and there's no court above that well then the apostolic see cannot become a source of poison for the entire church because if that were the case where to where do we appeal then that now we're off to the caves and, and to hide under trees and form our own little schisms, you know? So this was one of those natural developments that coincided with the scripture because, because the Chris, you know, when, when they started to, to defend papal infallibility in the early centuries of the church, the way they did it was they cited Luke 23, where St. Peter denied the Lord three times uh it was for, predicted he would. And then Christ said, but I have prayed for you that when you are converted, you would um, you would strengthen the brethren. They took that as a, 
as a typological prayer for all of St. Peter's successors. So they were rooting it in Scripture, but they were also taking some of these um, this, these philosophical questions as, as I just described, you know, who, who's the, what's the chief voice of the, of the, in doctrine? Well, it's, it's scripture coinciding with human reason. And, you know, so that's one of the ways uh, development worked in that regard, but there's so many other ways it did as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned infallibility. That's of course the, the big deal, right? That, okay. So there might be a, there might be a, a seat in the church of the church in Rome might be very important. And you see, you see different places appealing to Rome and you see that kind of growing and that becoming more codified and more established and more authority kind of coming underneath there and underpinning that. But then suddenly you tack on this idea of infallibility. And right, the criticism is, well, that's, that's again, an accretion, something that Rome has added on that didn't exist in Scripture and that didn't exist in the early church. We don't see in the early church these, you know, a guy called a pope who's saying, this is what I infallibly dictate for you to follow in some kind of, for, you know, formulaic way. This was an accretion that, that, that Catholics just... Yeah, you know, you know, over over time, but right. again, you're tracing out the the papacy throughout time. So, what did you find as you began to to look at that in terms of this really this quite serious, like you know, court of last appeal, infallible place to to appeal to? What did you begin to find that that convinced you that the the Catholic claim was to this infallible office, the, yeah. the papacy was? Was where to, to you know to, to 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 put your hat to hang your hat. Yeah, yeah. There's and there's many reasons, but uh, I I could give you one of the most important ones, and it's this. Um, it's it wasn't the beauty of the papacy. That's not what drew me. What what drew me was if I was going to deny the papacy, what do I have left? Okay, so I go. I came at it from that angle. So you, you know, you've got your Protestants and your Orthodox, and they see this highfalutin papacy develop in the Middle Ages, eight hundreds, nine hundreds. You've got these, you know, wild Roman pontiffs making these, <laughs> you know, grandiose claims. Um, and okay, so what do we do then? Do, okay, like, like, oh, well, that's just a development. Uh, that's at the long end of a, of many, a gradual development, you know? All right. So let's, let's, let's accept that on the table. That's a fact. Let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say that happened. Okay. Where do we go now? What does our compass say to do now? Well, okay, well, it was a development. All right, so let's go, let's rewind then, right? Because we we can fix this development by just turning the clock back, right? That that should be the way, right? So when you turn the clock back and you still see facts that are only commensurate with with what we're calling that develop that crazy development. There's no, there's like when you're turning back the hour hand and you keep going, you keep going and you're looking for that purity. You're looking for that purity where there's no papacy. There's no claim to jurisdiction. And I don't find anything that's not commensurate with the development. And so for me, when that happens, if I'm going to take the development thesis as a proof of illegitimacy, 
then it's kind of like taking all of my options off the table. And now I don't have a Christian option anymore. You know, I don't have an option for the church of Jesus Christ. Now I have the historical story of what the Bible says, but I don't have anything tangible to really go to uh, myself and the, you know, where I'm living in the 21st century, I guess we could recreate the faith. Um, and that's, you know, we could do that, but uh, you're going to, you know, with human inquiry, we're going to wonder where, why, where are we getting the right to do these things? And so if, if, if I could go back in time and, 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 you know, set the hook on, ah, there's the purity before it got bad, then I would say, all right, let's, let's, let's go that route. Let's see if there's something there. Um, and, and with all honesty, I kind of wanted to see that alternative, but I just didn't. And so that's, that's one of the main reasons why uh, I stuck with this age old tale of the papacy. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And of course the, the criticism I think from, from people in Protestant and Orthodox camps would be say, okay, so there, there may have been this, the, the, the primacy of, of Rome. We, we see this through history, but Vatican one just doubled down on this in a way that wasn't appropriate, right? Vatican one did broke some somehow from, from tradition and just flat out kind of to put the cards down and from there, there's no going back now. Like, there's right. no, right? How do you respond to a claim like that? I mean, I think your answer is, well, look at history. Because you, you've traced out the history that, that this was not an audacious claim when, when, when it was made, right? But what, what do you say something like that? Someone that, that says, this was when, you know, Rome put down the cards, there's no, there's no going back, and they didn't have the right to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so this is the, you know, a very famous claim and you hear it from Protestant scholars, Orthodox scholars, and, and even, even some dissident Catholic scholars, you know, names won't be mentioned once again. Um, but they say, well, yeah, you know, they realize they can't get rid of this thing of the Roman primacy. Right. So they're going to have to figure out how they can be a team player with it at least up until a certain point. So what they'll do is they'll say, well, yeah, Rome had primacy. Yeah, you know, but Roman primacy, the final court of appeal is one thing, but Vatican I is something completely different. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll make that like a dichotomic contrast between historic the acceptable version of Roman primacy, but the Vatican one primacy is like a completely different animal. And so that's the way to put the game over to this whole thing about the papacy. So there's a couple of things I'd say to this. Okay. The first thing I would say to this is this. All right. So let's say Vatican one is too far. So let's, let's turn it down a notch. And we're still at a papacy. Let's turn it down another notch. And we're still at a papacy. I mean, how how many notches down do we take it for it to match the Presbyterians or the Anglicans or the Orthodox? Right. The Orthodox are the ones that are going to come closest. So let's just deal with, with that. 
So what we see in the early centuries of the church are four main things that I think um, are already there, and they're only commensurate with Vatican I. They're not commensurate with contemporary ideas of ecclesiality amidst the patriarchs of the Orthodox Church. Um, So the idea that Christ, when he established the government of the church in the apostles, he singled out Peter. Okay, so that's he singled him out for a role of leadership. So that's one thing. Number two, that role of leadership was jurisdictional in nature. It was authoritative in nature. So it was a primacy, a real primacy that was not just one of honor. It's not just one of influence uh, or, you know, a moral example. We're talking about an office that can be acted upon like a, like a, like a colonel over, you know, captains and the captains over the lieutenants, you know, a real hierarchy. Uh, and uh, third, that uh, that primacy of Peter would not die with him. So once Peter would would go to his reward, somebody would assume the same role, and not just not anybody, but and this is the fourth point that it was it was established permanently in the Roman Church. Okay. And that, that, especially that element of permanency, you know, uh, because you've got Philip Melanchthon, you know, who authored many of the documents in the, the book of Concord for Lutherans. They'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, we, the papacy is fine, you know, as long, and it could go away too, you know? So, and they were happy to say that because they could just say it went away. Uh, the good version of the papacy. And the same thing with the Orthodox. You know, the good purpose, the, the good version of the Roman primacy was there for a thousand years, but then it disappeared. Well, the, the problem is the early sources have that element of permanency, kind of like the way they speak about the permanency of the episcopate. And no Orthodox is going to have be be able to dream of a day when they wake up and say, you know what? The Episcopal office was great when it helped us. It doesn't help us anymore, so we're going to do something else. They don't do that because they'll say, no, this is of divine DNA. This is etched into the DNA of the church. We can't edit it out. Well, the sources talk about that for the Roman primacy. So even without getting into how maximal the authority is you still have the Roman primacy etched into the DNA. And so just from, you know, without getting into a one-to-one correspondence with whether, you know, what's the detail of that primacy? Is it immediate? Is it uh, direct? Is it ordinary? Is it universal? Um, Without even going into those questions, the Roman primacy was a divine institution that can't just be, canceled just like the episcopate can't be canceled just like the pres- the presbytery can't be canceled just like the eucharist can't be canceled the sacraments can't be canceled these are of divine institution and so divine irreversibility is a feature of the early roman primacy well if that's the case then it has to exist in every century thereafter 
And there's only one ecclesial society today which maintains the perpetuance of it. And that's that's the, that's the church that assembled at Vatican I. So without even going into like, well, you know, all the, is it ordinary? Is it all those things? It, you know, is it just appellate by appeal, by appeal, by appeal only? Or is it universal, direct, ordinary, without even getting into those things? And I do get into those things, by the way. I don't want to <laughs> run away from those things. I do address those things in the book. But I'm trying to simplify this just as a before we get into the weeds, these are some preliminaries to, to, for us to back up and say, well, wait a minute. There's already enough in the early Roman primacy to foretell that there could never be a time when it gets canceled. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And I think linking that to the the episcopacy is I mean I mean talking to our orthodox brothers and sisters that's that's gosh that's that's a a winning perspective Eric because yeah of course you're not going to they're not going to wake up tomorrow and, and say okay the bishops are all canceled we don't need those guys anymore we're fine right. without those right it, well yeah but follow that logic out I think that's a great point Eric yeah yeah yeah. I mean, it doesn't get directly to, you know, the evidence of yeah, yeah. director, I, but we, we could, I, I mean, the, the book goes into that and uh, we'd be here forever. <laughs> <laughs> we would. I want to ask you one last question. It's this thinking of that, that person who's on the journey or who is an Orthodox person or the person on the journey, looking into the Catholic faith, stopping in orthodoxy to have a good look there, see what's going on. Even those people I think are equally served by, by this answer. What would you say to a person who is, who is there to convince them, as both you and I did, you with 10 years of working 800 pages, me with well, not quite as many, uh, much research done, but okay, here, here I am. Nonetheless, to, to keep them going to their, their eye on Rome. Why go further and become Catholic, not stop over in the Orthodox and, and lay your authority claim you know, there? Yeah. So, you know, I, I have many friends who are Eastern Orthodox and um, I don't put undue pressure upon them. Yeah. You know, if they want to stay Orthodox, um, I will continue to be a friend to them. I will have my door open to them. Um, but if, if they have lingering questions, then I'm, I'm going to tell them that the sources that we all share, scripture and tradition, uh, speak about the papacy as one of those things that's essential to the Christian faith. Um, as much as we might not like it, I mean, not every Orthodox is, is happy with his particular bishop. You know, sometimes the system really stinks, even as an Orthodox. You know, uh, bishops do bad things, metropolitans do bad things, patriarchs do bad things, and sometimes these things can last for centuries, you know. Um, and yet they all admit that they can't delete those things. Well, if we could show from the sources, you know, and I would say get yourself a basic library of books is you know if you want to study this issue you're going to have to read it's not one of those things where you can just um you know uh put you know so sodium carbonate with water mix it up and then boom you see the truth it this is kind of like going on a diet or going on you know i'm sp speaking for myself i'm a, i'm on a long painful diet you know <laughs> trying to lose weight um it takes, it's going to take work and you're going to find yourself, you know, being upset that you don't see results very quickly. 
well, how bad do you want the truth? You know, so I say you're going to have to do the reading. And I, but if you do the reading, the idea is go to the sources that we both know that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox both accept are unquestionable. We, we have no right to question those sources, which is scripture and tradition, you know, the councils, the church fathers, the doctors, the magisterium. And based upon the rules of those two sources, I would press upon them that you will see the emergence of a clarity for the papacy that that rather than some sort of ambiguity that allows for what you see today in the Orthodox Church, where, you know, um, there is definitely a sense of need for administrative unity in the Orthodox Church. And uh, no matter how well the liturgy is celebrated, um, when you, you when you have a violent schism, it just makes that liturgy even more heartbreaking because now I don't know which of them is going to be the one I can go to. And even right now, you've got a temporary schism between, you know, the the Moscow, the the, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Church of uh, Constantinople. And uh, I want to say there's some more that the, the the Patriarch of Moscow just recently. Uh, erased some other bishops from the diptychs of the divine services of commemoration. And and this one's slightly different. It's not like before where there were slight schisms between the Greek patriarchs. This one I don't think can be overcome unless they finally resolve this question of authority. And how are they going to resolve that question but by an ecumenical council? That's what many of the hierarchs today are saying. We can, and I, I get the emails from people who have these new articles. The patriarch of uh, Jerusalem came out and said, the only way to resolve the schism between uh, Moscow and Constantinople and the issue with Ukraine and now with the war, which makes things further complicated is to assemble a pan-Orthodox synod. And there's already been plans, and it came to execution over 100 years for a pan-Orthodox synod in the year 2016 at the Council of Crete. But it only took the unwillingness of four autocephalous churches to completely take away the authoritative status of of that council. And so I I don't want to say that, look, this proves orthodoxy wrong. But what I'm saying is, for those of you who are trying to get introduced to this topic and you're wanting to know what you should look at, you know, get yourself a good number of books. Get don't even you don't even have to read mine. You know, just <laughs> I, I, I I I have a list coming out sooner or later on recommended books. Just read read the scholars. Pick up the books on the the best scholars who are atheists, who are secular historians. Um, they might be Buddhists. They might be Shintoists. Read history from all angles. Read Protestants, Orthodox, Catholics. Um, Sometimes the Catholic historians is just as good as reading the secular historians. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, read, just read and pray and um, don't beat yourself up. That's another thing I would say, because I got myself into a, a, a real mess at one point and um, 
it, I quickly, it was a quick, it was, it was a theodicy issue at, at that point, you know, well, Lord, you know, I've been seeking you for so long. I've been praying to you for so long and the clarity isn't here with me yet. You know, don't you want me in your will? You know, it seems so counterproductive for so many people to be confused on this issue. Uh, when it's a matter of salvation, it seems like if you're a good God, you would remove, you would remove all the smoke from our eyes. It's not that way. It's not that way. God does not move the smoke from everyone's eyes all the time. And for what reason? We don't know. This goes right. That's why I say it goes right back to a theodicy issue. You know, Job, you know, his friends had all the, all those objective reasons why Job was suffering. Well, it's got to be because of this. It's got to be because of that. It's got to be because of this. They were all wrong. Those were all the natural human intuitions. And then God comes in the end and says, well, you know, I created the heavens and the earth. I have my own reasons for why I allow, I allow things, you know, and because of that, we have to focus more on our heart. Are we going where God has made things clear to us? And if you're humble and you're seeking him with all your heart, you don't have anything to worry about. That's that's I, I firmly believe that. But I'll also say that the direction I believe firmly is going to be in the Catholic Church, and so um, definitely pray and uh, and and do the hard work. The Proverbs says the truth is like a hit treasure that you have to fight for. You have to search for wisdom. Um, it's not going to come like a McDonald's Happy Meal. <laughs> that's that's a good analogy for diets and for <laughs> research right. the papacy. That's good. <laughs> Uh, Eric, it's always a pleasure to have you on the, on the show. I'd have you every week if I could. Uh, you're a fantastic guy to talk to. You got a great mind, done some great research, and I love how you. I love. I love how you. You make me mad, Eric, because on Facebook you're always posting things that are like the 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 steel man against your arguments, right? Constantly see you on Facebook posting things. I'm like, Eric, but don't share that. That's too good of an argument against the Catholic faith or against the papacy or against these. But you know, you're you're honest and genuine in your research, and you're not going to shy away from the tough the, the tough stuff. So, I I appreciate so often your perspective on things and how you how you do your your work and your research. So. Thank you. Thanks for sharing it with us and blessing us with your, with your work and for being here. Uh, where do people, I mean, you have a, a library of books you've, you've produced now. Where can they go to get this stuff and where can they go to find more things from you and to follow you as you continue to provide us with, with the, yeah. the, the, the fruits of your labor? <laughs> yeah. So um, thank you for all those words, by the way. Um, but the papacy book, um, it, I don't have the, 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 the jacket on here, um, but it comes with a jacket. Uh, this you can get at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you just type that in Google, uh, it'll take you to the St. Paul Center, which is where Emmaus Road Publishing has all their books. And if you just type in my name in the, brow in the browsing library of the, uh, of the website, my book will come up, and you could purchase, purchase it there. That's the preference. If not, you can get it on Amazon. It's available on Amazon. All my other books are on Amazon. So you could just type in my name in Amazon, and they'll be there. Um, uh, so that's that's that goes for my books. And they're also available in Kindle in case, you know, if you want an ebook version of this, there's definitely one on St. Paul Center, and there's a Kindle version of my other books on Amazon. Um, 
you could look at my blog, uh, ericibarra.org. And this is where, like Keith had mentioned, this is where I do a lot of my own sort of uh, basic training. And I, ch- I, I challenge my own views with my own posts. And I do it, and it almost throws some people off because it's like, well, wait a minute. That kind of sounds like he's leaving us on the note of like we're like we're going to maybe have to go somewhere else. No, that's never really what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm just thinking let's let the opposing side shine in all of its valid force and then respond to it. You know, um, so that's usually how I look at it. But, yeah, it's very strange. I understand it is. Um, but if you're if you're if you're mature enough to, to, to go into deep waters like that, go to that blog. That's where I do a lot of my spitballing theologically, historically, philosophically. Um, you could look at a new website I have. It's called ericibarra.com. And what I have forthcoming there is that's going to be like a main page. It'll have a link page to all of my speaking engagements. And uh, I do plan on having a Patreon sooner or later to do courses, book clubs, Q&As. That's coming in 2023. That sounds fantastic. (laughs) Sign me up, Eric. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for being here, Eric. Uh, Once again, always appreciate it. Thanks for the work that you do. Once again, God bless you. And God bless that work you are doing for the church. It's incredible stuff. And uh, you you and your family, your, your six boys down there, that sounds busy. I can only imagine, Eric, so thanks for taking the time to do this, and uh, God bless. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, friends, thank you again for listening to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Thanks, friends. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website for show notes, for uh, my blog and things that we're doing. Find it all over on TheCordialCatholic.com. Uh, love your feedback on what you think of this show and others. Uh, CordialCatholic at gmail.com is how you can do that. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, why you're listening, and what you think of episodes like this one. I love your feedback, guys. It helps really to help to hone this show, make it better and better and better. So thank you for your feedback. We're on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram, and on Twitter at Cordial Catholic. Find us and follow us there. We're on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic. And you can watch what you're hearing here on YouTube at youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic. Please do follow the show where you find it. And hey, if you can leave a rating or review on anywhere, you, you can do that on, on Podchaser, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Good Pods, wherever you find this show, those ratings and those reviews really help to push the podcast out to more people. Let them know and spread the mission and the mandate of this thing, guys, which I think is a, a worthwhile thing. And it seems like God is giving me the grace and the ability, the time and the finances to do it week after week. So I think it's probably it's probably worth it. I don't know what you think, but hopefully you think so too. If you want to support this show financially, you can head over to paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash cordialcatholic for a monthly contribution. Those over at Patreon get early access to episodes and chances for all kinds of extra little bonus things along the way. Check out those perks over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thanks for listening, friends. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. 
A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.